And uh, I'm not sure where to uh, invite you to get started in Scripture. Um, we're kind of going all over the place today. We'll start in, uh, I guess, in Hebrews 12, um, where we read just a minute ago where our Scripture reading for the day was. And let me say, I guess, too, to start off, that we got a lot to celebrate today. Some of you have been with us from the beginning. Some of you have recently kind of come on board. Some of you even maybe this morning checking things out. And we're excited that all of you are here. Um, God does as he does, and it's his church, and he grows his church. So um, we're thankful for all of those things. I was thinking about this. Uh, kind of adding up some of the unique numbers of our church in seven years that we've, uh, uh, we've served over um, 6,000 meals to the homeless since we started, um, that we've dedicated over 150 kids through the church. We've taken care of thousands of kids um, in the back, and we could keep talking about some of those unique things that God has done, this unique work. As Jason said, we've been in four locations um, within the five years and now, of course, within seven. And uh, no idea, you know, this, of course, this building isn't ours either. And I'm not sure if we will, uh, will ever have one of our own or if that's even kind of what God wants for us. But uh, our commitment is to follow him. And I just want to say a heartfelt thanks to you for uh, the support along the way. I'd like to thank our incredible volunteers and our serving teams. We literally have the best serving teams. It's just in the DNA of our church. And if you've been around very long, um, you know, kind of the way, like the way in is to start stacking chairs. Um, I tell people sometimes you got to be careful uh, inviting uh, David Deloach or Jeff Grubbs over for dinner because as soon as dinner's over, they're going to start stacking your dining room chairs. That's just kind of, that's just kind of what we do. When things are over, we start stacking chairs. Um, and uh, we've had several serving events with other churches, and their pastors would come up to me and say, man, your, your people do not kid around. Like, they just jumped right in and started serving. And that is always uh, such a uh, compliment, I think, because um, uh, I love to serve, and I think that's what the church should do is to serve, to serve each other, certainly to serve um, others. We've got incredible volunteers, and I'm sure they would say that the best way to thank them um, is, is to join them. And uh, just a shameless plug that we need more people on our uh, serving teams um, all the time. Hebrews 12 that we read uh, earlier says, and I don't think this part's kind of on the screen, but since we've been surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... These sins that entangle us, let us run with endurance the race that's before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. I was reading that early this week, and I really was headed in a different direction. We were supposed to finish our little series on multiply, and, um, and, and we're not. I'm going to finish that next week, and then we're going to put off starting the book of Acts one more week, but... Um, this idea of fixing your eyes on Jesus. I'm one of the guys that uh, I'm really good at getting lost. And I don't know if you're like that. I know a lot of men like take, you know, great pride in the fact that they know where they're going all the time. My dad was that way, even in cities that we had never been to. Somehow he knew his way around. This is before GPS and MapQuest and 
all the things. Uh, he could just, he just knew where he was going. And I'm the guy that I've lived here in this city for seven years and I still do not know where I'm going. Um, I'll be coming from Shreveport to Bossier and trying to find one of those little cut through roads from, from Benton to airline. I won't know which one. I'll have to pull it up on my GP. I just can't. I, I just, I get lost all the time. Um, and Ashley is used to this, and so when we drive, she kind of just points directions. Um, she used to tell me where to go, but that's kind of offensive to me, so she doesn't do that anymore. Just nonchalantly, with her hands resting in her lap, she just points her finger this way or that way, and then I still feel like a man, and we get to where we need to go. Um, and it is a really good compromise that we have found. Um, if we don't do that, and this has happened multiple times, uh, my mind is focused on other things when I'm driving, things other than driving, and uh, no kidding, four or five times in, in my life, um, what snaps me out of my daydreaming is the sign, welcome to Texas. And I, I'm not trying to go to Texas, um, but I end up there, I do not know how, um, welcome to Texas, and I know I'm, I'm going the wrong direction. I think the author of Hebrews this is such a great, encouraging word for the church. Says, kind of this, this passage is framed up with, let us run with endurance the race that is before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder or the initiator and the perfecter of our faith. Let us run with endurance with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And I think that's my heart for us at our seven-year mark that we would more, more closely than ever, more clearly than ever, with more focus than ever, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus. Now here's, I'm guilty of getting caught up in the strategy of what's going on. And I love to strategize, and you can ask uh, the people that, that work, work with us on staff that we have probably five or six whiteboards in the office, and I love, to, I love to strategize and put things in people's names, and what if they served here, and I think they have this spiritual gift, and uh, I think they would be good on this team, and I do that a lot, and I love to strategize, but here's what I'm guilty of, just like when I'm driving, I'm thinking about all these other things, and I lose track of where we are actually headed at the moment. And I think this, when I read this this week <clears throat> on Monday, it grabbed my heart, this idea of fixing our eyes on Jesus. First John tells us that we should walk as Jesus walks, that we should use his life as a picture of what God would do if he were here now in the flesh. And so I spent the rest of the week reading through some of the Gospels, and I found myself gravitating towards the book of Luke. And if you're new here, you might not know, we spent three years walking through um, the book of Luke, and uh, it may have not have done anything for the church, but did a lot for me because we got to study up close at the Gospels. But I think one of the things you're guilty of, I was guilty of, when we take three years to walk through one book, is you kind of miss the forest for the trees kind of thing. You don't, you don't see the big picture because you're taking these, um, these parables and these stories and these interactions and you're looking at them so close that sometimes you miss the overarching heart of God. So Luke makes this uh, special effort to demonstrate what God's initiative in this world is, the Missio Dei, maybe you've heard it said, the mission of God, that his mission or his heart is concerned for the lost, the last, and the least. And this is clear from the first few chapters to the very end. Luke is always drawing attention to the ways in which, as Mary put it in the Magnificat, that God would cast down the proud and lift up the lowly. 
the last, the lost, and the least. So I'm going to look at that in the heart of God, and we're going to look at several different pictures to the book of Luke, and then we're going to cover a lot of scripture, and I'm going to try to talk fast and go fast so we're not here all day. But first, this idea of seeking the lost. We see this in Luke chapter 15. You know, in Luke 15, there's, the, there's these three stories that are uh, interwoven together, kind of stacked really wide on, right on top of each other with the theme of lostness. Let me read a few of them to you, starting in uh, Luke 15 and verse 8. I say, let's start in verse 3. He told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one, doesn't leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together all his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, Jesus says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. We see a bit of the heart of God. Literally, that heaven throws a party, it says here, rejoices with joy over one sinner who turns from his own way of folly and sin and turns to Jesus. The whole, there's a party in heaven when that happens takes a breath and then starts in on the second story. In verse 8, or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, <clears throat> does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then he tells the story of the lost son. We've got the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. Because of time, I won't read the whole story, but you've heard it, right? Of the man that had two sons. One son who was self-righteous, uh, worked hard, honored his dad. The other son who wanted, demanded his inheritance so that he could go squander it, basically. And that's what he did. The younger son who when you're reading scripture you think is the prodigal, wakes up in a pigsty at some point and said, even my slaves have it better than I do that work, even my dad's slaves. So he concocts this idea of going home and he's like rehearsing his speech. Like, dad, I've done you wrong. I don't want to be your son. I know I've, I've severed all relational ties, but if just you would let me work for you as, as an indentured servant, basically, and you would provide some room and board, then I would be so very grateful. And he's rehearsing this, and he sees his dad, and he sees this figure. He's not sure it's his dad. And it ends up being his dad running to him, embracing him, and throwing this huge party for him before he can ever get his excuses out. And then the older son, the end of the story, is the one outside of the house, feeling like his dad made too big of a deal over his loser little brother. Here's what we see in these passages is that God loves and seeks the lost. Sacrifices great things for the lost. I mean great things. The, who in his right mind would leave 99 sheep in the, in the open country to go after one that was lost? I mean any kind of logical argument says, no, 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 you got to keep the 99 safe. But this isn't about being a shepherd. This is about God's heart for people. 
And he says that he would leave the 99 to go after the one because God's heart is for the lost. And what lady would really, would really throw that big of a deal over one little coin when she had nine others? Surely maybe she could get another one. But this isn't about losing coins. This is a picture of God's heart for the lost. He was always seeking the lost. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was leaving the earth on the Mount of Ascension and he gathered all of his followers together and he's going to give us this kind of last charge, this is what he said. Hey, listen, you're my followers. I want you to go and wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come. And when he comes, I want you to make it your mission to go and seek the lost. I just want you, that, that's the mission. He didn't talk about anything about building a church. There was no strategy on any kind of whiteboard that we need to set up a church in Jerusalem and we need to set one up in Antioch and Ephesus and surely Corinth. That's just a, that's just a, a mega port city. We got to do it this way. There was no strategy. Jesus told his 120 followers that gathered with him on the Mount of Ascension, he said, listen to this one thing and I want it to be so clear through the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to go to the very ends of the earth with the gospel message. Now, we as the church, we're the one that have complicated a lot of this. It really is pretty simple. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, your heart should echo the heart of God, the aim of God in seeking the lost. That God be in the picture, the good father here longed for his lost son to come home in the same way The eternal father longs for lost to be found. Again, it says, every one of these little stories end with this. Hey, we found him. The sheep, hey, we found it. The coin, hey, hey, the son has come home. Stop everything you're doing and rejoice with me. But not just seeking the lost. He he loved the last. There were two groups of people the Jews really hated that they didn't want to even look at them, to touch them, to be around them. Their bigotry and racism towards these groups of people were so apparent apparent that the disciples themselves thought Jesus was scandalous for including them in his life and ministry. You probably know these two groups of people, right? Tax collectors and the Samaritans. The Jews literally hated them. Now, tax collectors weren't just like IRS agents of today, although I don't know how you know, welcome and esteemed uh, those people. I've never met an IRS agent. I don't know what I would say. Maybe they have to come up with clever things to tell people what they actually do, like I do as a pastor. Uh, That's not, when people ask me what I do, I've got to get creative and explaining so I don't get really weird looks. I forgot, uh, somebody in a community group says that uh, we foster community, develop community. That's what I should say. I help foster and develop community. Um, These tax collectors were traitors. They were guilty of treason. They were mostly Jews by birth, sold out to Rome to enforce this overwhelming tax. They were robbing people under the law. It was not rare to see Rome demand 50% of a person's income to finance all of this war and all the things they were doing. And then these tax collectors would sometimes, in some cases, literal history books, take an extra, an additional 40%. So 90% of a person's income would be given away. 
taken from them. And this is insane. And no one liked tax collectors. When we see the story of Zacchaeus, who was the chief tax collector, the dude had to climb a tree because no one would let him into the front of the line to see Jesus come by. No one liked them. Everyone hated them. But Jesus loved these people, even included them in several of the stories, one to be a disciple and one of the gospel writers, actually. In Luke 18, Jesus compared one of these dreaded tax collectors, hated by all the people, to one of the most respected people in that society, a Pharisee. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. I have this on there. Yeah, in Luke 18. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, you can kind of picture it, prayed thus, God, I thank you I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, again, we don't get the shock, but the tax collector in this story and the parables that Jesus told was the story of a monster. These stories don't have shock value like they would have in the first century. It would be similar to us comparing Mother Teresa and an ISIS militant. Or the Pope to an abortion doctor. Or Billy Graham to a sex trafficking pimp. I mean, it was complete shock value when Jesus painted this picture of, um, of a Pharisee that everyone in the, Jew, uh, in the Jewish audience would be like, oh, one of those dedicated religious guys that, that ties even off of his, his herb garden. One of those guys to this tax collector. It's the fifth or sixth time as you read through the book of Luke that Jesus has done this. He told the story in such a shocking fashion where the good guy is not made right with God and the bad guy ends up being part of God's family. Why? Because God was showing us that the new kingdom, what his kingdom really looks like, it's a place where the last are first and the first are last and Jesus loved the last. The other group hated by the first century Jews were the Samaritans. Again, this is lost on us. We don't have any beef with the Samaritans or even... (laughs) know much about them but at the time there was a lot of bad blood between the jews and the samaritans more precisely it was to the jews it was the samaritans who had the bad blood they were the results of centuries of intermarriage and combining uh inner interreligious syncretism between jews and israel's former gentile conquerors a lot of the babylonians And over the year, the Samaritans had developed their own version of Scripture. They had built their own temples that the Jews didn't think were approved by God on their own mountain. Their beliefs were profane distortions of Jewish orthodoxy. Therefore, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, John 4 tells us, and vice versa. But Jesus had made a a bit of a name for himself among the Samaritans because he, he had dealings with them. For Jew, Jesus spoke with and about Samaritans with unprecedented kindness and compassion. In fact, when we see in John chapter 4, this, uh, the woman at the well, a lady with questionable reputation, Jesus took time with her and spent time with her. And as a result, she and many other Samaritans believed that Jesus really was the Messiah. 
In Luke 9, Jesus and the disciples are moving through Samaritan town. They're looking for a place to spend the night, and none of the Samaritans would open up their home for them. And the disciples became angry, I mean crazy angry, indignant to the point to where James and John asked Jesus if he would call down on fire to heaven and burn the whole village. Now, you've got to be pretty angry for that to be a serious prayer. Now, they were not joking. Now, maybe that bit of anger has welled up in you before, Um, maybe in road rage. If you thought, if I had the magical power of catching things on fire, now would be a good time to use it. Certainly, these (laughs) James and John wanted to burn the town off the map. It's how much they hated these people. But remember, Jesus loved the last And he used the Samaritan as the hero of the story in his parable of the Good Samaritan, shock value for sure, and made special provision for all the outsiders and outcasts, including you and I. Jesus loved the last. Another lesson of scripture that passes over us is when Jesus loved the last, when he told those early disciples that they're to go to the very ends of the earth, he was talking about us. Jesus was a Middle Eastern brown-skinned Jew And everyone really that believed in Christianity early on were all Jewish. And Jesus flipped the script when he said, no, I want you to go to the Gentiles. And I want you to go to the very ends of the earth. So when Jesus is talking about loving the last, he is talking about our very selves. But yet we've tried to flip the script back and says... And think that God loves us in a more special way maybe than he loves others. And that is certainly not the heart of God. He loved the last. And finally, he served the least. The least of these, Jesus was always serving them. The difference, in my opinion, between the last and the least is that really in the book of Luke... The last, at least the last, had some sort of provision. They weren't destitute. They, they're just not accepted and loved by the Jews. They were people, when we talk about the least, those are the people that went unnoticed and uncared for with needs upon needs unmet. It was the poorest of the poor. It was the demoniac in the tombs of the... the Decapolis, it was the terminally ill, it was the lady with the issue of blood, it was the lepers who are forced out. These are the least. The least of these that no one cared about, the Samaritans or the Jews. These were the ones that had been completely rejected from all society. And yet we see literally a third of the Gospels, at least a third of the Scripture, when you walk through the book of Luke, Jesus is spending time in his life with the very least of these. Just read through it, how he cared for them and healed them and spent time with them. When the lady, terminally ill lady, that had the issue of blood had been cast out of society, not only did Jesus stop the ambulance to care for her and heal her, but he restored her faith and her dignity in front of everyone. One of the greatest pictures of this is in Luke chapter 7. Simon, a Pharisee, had invited Jesus over to his house for dinner. But Jesus was unimpressive to Simon, so much so that he denied him the most basic pleasantries of any guest in the Far Eastern culture by providing a place or person to wash his feet. 
And in the middle of the meal, all the attention was focused on a woman who certainly had not been invited to this party, who was washing the feet of Jesus with her tears. And I want to pick up in verse 39. Again, you're comparing, contrasting a Pharisee respected to this lady the least of these. Now, verse 39, now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, what the lady was doing, he said to himself, I like this, not bold enough to say it to Jesus at this point. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this was who was touching him, for she is a sinner. By the way, that's never um, a good way to uh, win friends and influence people by just opening up the statement with, you sinner. I love Jesus answers him in verse 40. Remember, he's talking to himself. This is when it gets scary. And this is also how, how, how you know you've been married for a very long time. When you know what your spouse is thinking and you answer them without them saying anything. Jesus answered him, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. This is this duel of words now over Simon's table. He tells a story about a moneylender who had two debtors and one owed 500 denarii, $5,000 and the other $50 and they couldn't pay and he canceled the debt of them both. Now, which one of them love him more? Jesus asked and Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. I'm wondering which point in this story does Simon get what Jesus is doing? Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly then turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered to your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. I love that phrase, that she loved much. But he who is forgiven loves little. He who is forgiven little loves little. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. As a Pharisee, Simon enjoyed a reputation as a godly man. He had a significant theological education. He had memorized extensive portions of Scripture, probably the entire first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. He exercised rigorous self-discipline. He prayed religiously. He tithed meticulously. The sort of things that would have elevated him to a man that is admired in the culture. In contrast, this woman's reputation was sleazy. Her law-breaking was public knowledge. Everyone knew it. No one mistook her as a servant of God. Though men had desired her, they had never admired her. No one admired her. Yet in front of all the dinner party guests, Jesus declared that this defamed woman actually loved God more than this ritually clean Pharisee. As a matter of fact, he's telling Simon, Simon, you actually don't love God very much at all. She loves much and you love little. Why? 
simply because the woman believed that she desperately needed the forgiveness Jesus offered in the gospel. While Simon thought he could get it on his own. Well, she knew that she, her only hope was the mercy and grace of God. When Simon thought that he had been earning this the whole time, when Simon, to gain righteousness, would put forth a resume of good deeds, this lady, like the tax collector in the temple that was beating his chest, had nothing to show other than a life full of mistakes and brokenness. And Jesus took time with her, restored her, forgave her sins, and used this as a very clear example to the watching world that God loves the last, the lost, and the least. He who is forgiven little loves little. That little sentence reveals this mammoth truth for us this morning that we will love God to the degree that we recognize our magnitude of sins and the immensity of God's grace to forgive them. And that's what Jesus was looking for and is still looking for. This is the kind of worshipers the Father seeking. It's talked about in John 4. For at its essence, true worship is a passionate love for God, not moralistic rule-keeping or feats of self-discipline. For sinners like us, like you and me, the fuel of that love is a profound realization that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Let me drive into your neighborhood for a minute. Covenant Church, who is welcome at our table? Who? Who's welcome at our table? Speaking of the church, who's invited into our doors? Is it just those that kind of look a little bit like us and kind of have the same, uh, same political opinion as us? Is it, the, is it the kind of, in a world right now where things are gone a, a bit haywire and everybody's making these public stances on Facebook, we see more separation than ever. And a lot of it is driven by the church itself. And it makes the heart of God so sad. Even in our own little social constructs, there's people that deserve the love of God a little more than other people. Just think about it in, in our own minds. Well, surely, surely God would not love the, the, the Democrats. Or surely he wouldn't love the Republicans. Surely God couldn't love those people who were kneeling instead of standing for the flag. Surely God wouldn't wouldn't, wouldn't love those people who are making such a big deal about the people kneeling in order to address some other social concern, and on and on it went. In our lives right now, this is how we think. That some people deserve the love and mercy of God, so much so that we will put these blanket posts on Facebook that only drive separation. And Jesus is looking at us and calling us Simon. Simon, you don't understand. You are not here to make the world a political better place. You are here to invite people into the kingdom of God. If you're a Christian in this room and call God your father, that is why we exist. Jesus spent several years with one of the most wicked rulers in Pontius Pilate as the governor. Now, one time did he make a political statement? One time they called him a fox. That's, 
That sleazy fox. We knew how he felt about him because Jesus knew the hope of the world was not in a better Rome. And the hope of the world for us is not in a better America. It really is not. It's in pointing people to the kingdom of God. It's us investing our lives and our resources and our finances into the kingdom of God. So Covenant Church, who is welcome at our table? Second question for us, who has God sent us to rescue? Who has God sent you to rescue? Let's make it more personal. Who is invited to your table? Not Covenant Church. Your table at home. Your your literal dinner table. Who's invited in? Is it just people that look like you and believe like you? It's not the heart of Jesus. Who's God sent you to rescue? Specifically, you to rescue. God has sent you. Book of Acts talks about how God has determined the time that we live and the places we live. Translation, you don't choose your neighbors, God chooses them. And he has sent them around you as people that need rescue. And he has sent you in the middle. Can you imagine a Coast Guard ship driving into some You know, this terrible situation where another boat had capsized and there were people floating all out about to die in some cold ocean. And the captain of the Coast Guard seeing all the need and saying, you know what, it looks dangerous out there. We don't even know if these, we don't know where these people even come from. Let's just keep going. That would be crazy. And Jesus has sent us in the same way. And then what Jesus said, even if I've been sent, so I'm sending you. He sent us the same way as rescue workers into the darkest parts of the world so that we could go and provide rescue. Because rescued people rescue people. Rescued people rescue people. There is no such thing as an apathetic Christian life. It's not anywhere in Scripture. These people, this early church, were so changed by the gospel of Jesus That when their lives were threatened, they walked into the threat, not ran away from it. And God used their bold faith to grow the church. It says in Acts 2, when the the church is growing and people are being added to it daily, it was because these people were just so fixed on Jesus. Jesus. I know we're out of time. I want to close with with one more parable. I think it kind of wraps up some of these other ones. It's in Luke 14. I told you we were going all over the book of Luke today. But I haven't preached in a month. So this is actually pretty good. In Luke 14, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Jesus is going to explain to us what that means. He said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for now everything is ready. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field, I got to go see it. 
please have me excused. And another one said, I've I bought five yoke of oxen. I must go and examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife. Therefore, I cannot come. So the servant came and reported all these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, and go out quickly in the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, then go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is a beautiful picture of what the church should be. A people who are willing to take great risk to invite others to taste and see that God is good. Covenant Church, who are we inviting? And I don't mean necessarily inviting to a gathering on Sunday. That might be a, a, a good step for some people. But who are we inviting? Of the last, the lost, and the least, who of those groups of people are we inviting into our lives to see God at work, to have a coffee, to have a meal in our home, to have a play date at the park. Who are we inviting in? To see God working. I believe everyone deserves an invitation and an introduction into God's family. Everybody. They need to see it, that it's real in us and not some sham. Let me ask this just random question. How many of you in this room came to Christ or became a Christian or found salvation or however you want to say it? How many of you in this room, I want you to raise your hand, came to Christ because someone else introduced you? Maybe it was a, a mom or dad or a grandparent or Sunday school teacher. How many of you? Just show your hands. If you came to Christ because someone else invested into your life and pointed you to Jesus. Most everybody in this room. Statistics say between 96 and 98% of people who come to Christ come because someone else points them. Some other rescue worker that wasn't afraid to do life with you, to get dirty with you, to put up with your ignorance. Someone else that was willing to love you through the rest of it, they... They were bold enough and they cared enough to invite you, to point you to what it means to be part of God's family and to belong to God's kingdom. 98%, that's like a ridiculous number. That means there's only really 2% of people that are like in the hotel opening up the, 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 the Bible that's in the thing. Only 2% are actually turning on and seeing what was Billy Graham, I don't know who it is now, on, on TV and saying, you know what, I'm going to change my entire life to follow. I actually met a guy a couple, uh, a year ago who was in the bathroom of a bar who found a little ripped off track that had like John 3.16 on it and became a Christian right there in the bathroom. But those are pretty rare. That's, that's kind of like a weird thing. Most people come because other people care enough to invite them. 
So who are we inviting? Who are we rearranging our entire life for this? Because this is why we're here. We'll have plenty of the rest of eternity in heaven for comfort, for, for all the things that we really, you know, are going to put off here. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, anyone who sacrifices or gives up for the kingdom of God, homes, and families, and comfort, We'll receive more in this lifetime and many, many, many more in the life to come. My prayer for us this week, covenant, is that we would look more like roots and less like leaves. More like roots. Psalms 1 talks about the man or woman whose life is rooted in the things of God. That the changing seasons don't really affect them very much. No, their lives are rooted. But the leaves, those are the things that just blow around with the wind of culture. That we would look more like roots and less like leaves. My prayer for me this week and for you this week, that we would be able to look back another seven years, that we would see of people who are rooted in this idea of loving the last, the lost, and the least. I mean, tenaciously driven to see it happen. Pray for us, and we're going to take communion. I'm going to give you some time, and I'd encourage you, but even before you come up, just to ask the Holy Spirit if he would point his finger to some things in your own life. Maybe some things that are just kind of muddying the way to this clarion call that God has given us to love the last, lost, and least. Maybe there's some sin that's actually tripping you up, as I talked about in the beginning of Hebrews 12. He would reveal that, you would confess that. Maybe some, some of you have just grieved the Holy Spirit and his work in you by saying no so much that you don't even hear the voice of God anymore. And maybe that would be your prayer, that you would pray the Holy Spirit would break your heart. We prayed, some of the deacons and other people, we prayed in this little room. Some of you probably walked in while we were in there praying. Man, we were having church in there. Everyone, it wasn't a theme. We just kind of just started praying. And everybody that prayed, prayed that God would grant us the gift of brokenness. Would be broken for the things that break God's heart. Until we're like this lady anointing the feet of Jesus, more like her and less like Simon, who thinks we don't need anything, God's not going to move here. We would have the prayer of John the Baptist that we would decrease so that he might increase. Let me pray for us. Father, you know our hearts. Man, some of us come in here, we put on a solid religious game every Sunday. And we walk the right walk, and we shake the right hands, and we stand and sing, and we do the things that we know to do, but our hearts are so far from you. And we've been playing this religious game for so, just far too long. And God, we ask right now that you would grant us the gift of repentance and brokenness so that that our hearts and our lives would be about the things that really, really matter. 
And as we prepare for our hearts to respond to you and participate in communion, Father, please grant us brokenness and repentance and an assurance that we're part of your family. And if there's some in here that don't know you, Lord, I pray they would take a step of faith today to cross over this line and put their faith and trust you. For others who are just grown weary or tired, maybe apathetic, Father, would you dial up the passion in their hearts for the things of God once again? It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. I give you some time to pray. I'll be in the back. Communion's open when you're ready. Scripture says communion is for people who are part of God's family. And if that's not you, we ask you to sit this one out. But when you're ready, our communion servers are here.